Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden has hit the road to sell his signature economic agenda without alienating the Republicans he needs for his bipartisan infrastructure package that's also on his agenda. This as he appears to remove longstanding ambiguity about U.S. policy toward Taiwan in a CNN town hall meeting last night in Baltimore, telling Anderson Cooper that the United States has a commitment to defend Taiwan if it's been attacked by China. This as Beijing not only ratchets up its pressure on Taipei and every other country in the region, but that Chinese hypersonic missile tests earlier this summer stunned Washington with capabilities they did not think their potential adversary has. The White House subsequently walked back Biden's comments saying U.S. policy toward Taiwan hasn't changed. North Korea tested a submarine-launched ballistic missile. Russia continues to bully Europe as Europe's foreign policy chief visits Washington uh, to deepen connections between uh, the two organizations, and Iran advances his nuclear capabilities. Uh, And of course, the United States Navy uh, has uh, released uh, the results of its investigation uh, into the devastating fire aboard uh, the Bonham Richard amphibious assault ship that devastated it uh, last year. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Evelyn Farkas, who served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia during the Obama administration, Uh, Todd Harrison of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts CSIS among his many affiliations. Later in the program, our producer, Chris Cervello, who co-hosts the Cavus Ships podcast with our very own contributing editor, Chris Cavus, will join us to discuss briefly uh, the Navy investigation into the Bonham Richard fire and the number of senior leaders who may be disciplined in the wake of this investigation. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Raphael USA sponsored our coverage of uh, the Association of the United States Army's uh, recent conference and trade show in Washington, D.C. And check out our new Downlink podcast with uh, our very own contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a deep and thoughtful dive each week into all things space. Everybody, thanks very, very much for joining us. Uh, Todd and Evelyn, welcome back uh, to the program. Todd, start us off. Uh, Not that much going on budgetarily, but enough going on budgetarily that tradition holds that we start the show with that. Uh, Michael Herson, unfortunately, of American Defense International uh, can't join us, but we're lucky to have you here. Talk to us a little bit about uh, what caught your attention budgetarily this week, and, and Dove would like to get your sense. Yeah, no, Vago, thanks for having me back on uh, the podcast. Yeah, here we are the second half of October. We're under a continuing resolution. It's not going to end anytime soon, but that's perfectly normal. And to be expected, 80% of the time we start the fiscal year on a CR. Um, You know, the the real news that we're seeing uh, is that, you know, previously we'd seen the, um, the authorization bills, the NDAA, and both the House and the Senate were calling for an extra $24, $25 billion above the president's request. That's all nice. They don't actually set the budget. What really matters is the appropriations bill. And now we're seeing the Senate appropriators uh, are looking at adding about $22 billion uh, above the president's request for defense. Uh, So, you know, in my mind, all along, I've been thinking that, you know, we might end up with a defense budget that's 10 to 15 billion above the request. Uh, now that the Senate uh, has come at this higher number, um, I, I would you know expect that to be closer to the 15 billion uh, end of it. 
we still need to you know, see what the House appropriators are going to be able to get through the full House of Representatives. And we're not going to know that for a while because Congress has got a lot of other big budgetary issues that they're dealing with now. Chief among them is this infrastructure bill. Uh, so they've got to get a lot of that done, put away before they're going to get back to looking at appropriations. But I think it is looking like you know, DOD is is fairly certain to get a substantial increase, you know, in the range of 15 billion, if not more, above the president's request. Um, it's been a little bit since you joined us. I'm going to dove uh, in a second, but I want to get your, your sense, right? I mean, we had three of the major um, uh, big uh, conference and trade shows in a row in August. We had Navy League, obviously because of COVID, postponed from its normal uh, spring uh, timeframe. Then we had AFA, the Air Force Association show, and then we just had AUSA. And the message consistently from folks in the senior folks in the administration is more hard choices will be needed and we're looking to at a, at a flat budget. At the same time, Congress is saying, we're going to pick you up. So, so have we decided that we're going to normalize on the dance where the administration lives by a charade of an artificial cap that they're going to impose, knowing that Congress is going to plus this up somehow? I mean, is that the dance we're going to see going forward? Otherwise, the statements that are made by senior administration leaders on this makes no sense, right? Yeah, no, I think that, you know, we that does seem to be the way the politics is playing out right now, is that the administration is going to put in requests that's a little bit less than what they expect they're going to get. Uh, and then they let Congress figure out how to, you know, add that money or make the hard choices within the budget uh, to do without, you know, and, and this budget in particular, I think it was instructive that many of the things they took out of it um, before they sent it to Congress are things that they know good and well that Congress is going to put back in, particularly in shipbuilding. Uh, you know, so there, the, you know, that is the game that we seem to be in right now. You know, they, they take things out, send it over to Congress, uh, and then it's up to Congress to figure out how to find the money to put it back in. I wouldn't count on that continuing indefinitely throughout this entire administration, because we got to keep in mind, we're running, you know, $3 trillion deficits right now. Uh, and depending on the size of this infrastructure bill and what happens with the economy overall, um, you know, folks could start to get very concerned. Policymakers get very concerned about the size of those deficits. And we've got a midterm election coming up. Uh, in 2022. So the, the political dynamics in Congress are likely to change substantially. Uh, and, you know, in the past, it's not been that great uh, for defense when we've been running high deficits. You have a Democrat in the White House and Republicans in control of Congress. Um, you know, so I don't know that this game will continue more than, you know, another year, but it does seem to be where we're in right now. Uh, Dove, uh, any update, uh, and especially right, I mean, we should say that the budget process is now hot and heavy in the administration. They're trying to put their first normal budget together, have it out. Uh, there's a national defense strategy deliberation going on, a national security strategy deliberation that's going on, right? The administration has said that next year is going to be the big muscle movement year. Uh, of course, then again, every administration sees, says next year, next year, next year, and eventually <laughs> it's, a, it's a decade and you haven't moved the needle as much as you need to move it. What's, what's your sense about where we are and where we're going? Well, first of all, I, I agree with Todd uh, that the, the House appropriators came in at 705. Uh, and I don't know what they'll do on the floor. But, you know, between 705 and, and 725, you're at 715. And they normally split the difference. 
Now, it may get a little bit higher in the House for the simple reason that uh, everybody's worried about China. Uh, and you've got about 110 progressives uh, that'll probably want to cut or at least not add to the budget. But you've got a lot of other Democrats who are ready to. And of course, all the Republicans right now will. So the number may be higher than 715, but I think 715 is about right. Uh, in terms of, of this kind of game playing that the administration comes in on the, uh, on the assumption that Congress will add, the problem with that, of course, is that uh, when Congress adds, uh, yeah, it's easy enough to add a couple of ships, but Congress likes to add things that are called legacy programs. In other words, exactly not the stuff you need to get out ahead of China and even Russia. Uh, so just playing this add-on game by Congress doesn't necessarily help our overall defense posture. Um, and that's one that needs to be borne in mind as well. Uh, so, you know, uh, the administration's got to balance its, its uh, left wing with its moderates and, and, and so on. But uh, the sentiment in the country uh, is, uh, that China is a huge problem. I mean, we've talked about this. The, the latest polling uh, has shown a, almost a doubling of concern about China over the last few years. Uh, and so even if the Republicans take the House, and a lot of people think they will, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to try to cut the defense budget. Now, remember also, if you're adding uh, $3.5 trillion and you've got a $3 trillion deficit, um, adding 25 billion or so is not really a lot of money. Uh, and uh, that's always been the paradox that the Democrats are ready to spend trillions, uh, but then get a heart attack over a few billion dollars. Uh, I, you know, as the old Chinese proverb goes, if you drink the poison, you might as well chew the glass, right? I mean, if you've spent that much money, that the rest of it is, is uh, sort of uh, uh, decimal dust. And, uh, and to add, right, uh, Todd was talking about the infrastructure measure. We're looking at another $2 trillion, give or take, uh, on uh, the Democrats' uh, signature uh, legislative uh, package uh, that they're uh, obviously putting forward. Evelyn, uh, you're uh, pretty tough on uh, defense, uh, Democrat. Uh, what is it in this uh, budget process that you see, right? I mean, you spend many years on the Hill uh, in the, on yeah. the Senate side and the Foreign Affairs Committee. What were some of the things that you see um, in this budget that, and in the process that you like things that you don't like, right? I mean, we'll walk us through because there, there's, you know, there is a lot of stuff that's obviously in both of these packages, uh, that are both uh, good and bad, right? Everybody has a tendency of focusing on the top line as opposed to some of the bigger messages. Right. I mean, obviously the focus on China deterring China is critical. Um, I also would be interested in delving into more of the details, you know, looking at report language, et cetera, to see what the committees are thinking in terms of dealing with Russia, because we still have a very urgent um, threat um, and risks being posed by that threat directly to commercial entities, as well as, of course, our military enterprise by Russia. So, um, you know, to, to my mind, the, the emphasis on those challenges Russia and China is is correct um, and you know it's not so much a question of the dollars um, again from my perspective it's where are those dollars going um, and how are we going to execute on the programs are we going to do it in a way that's smart you know public private partnerships dealing with the cybersecurity, um, and then of course across the board working closely with allies I mean 
one of my biggest concerns has been that we have had a tendency to um, march out unilaterally when it comes to trade and security issues. Um, and if we are going to counter Russia and China, we need to be lockstep with our NATO allies, with our European partners, with our Asian allies and partners. Otherwise, these great powers might, you know, might get the better of us. So I think for me, it's always pulling back to see the big picture, see how the money's being spent, not so much counting the dollars and cents. But I would agree, I would agree just quickly to summarize, I would agree, of course, with Todd and Dove, that clearly there is bipartisan um, consensus that this is not the time to, you know, gouge the Defense Department budget. Do you, um, I mean, you, you ran uh, for Congress unsuccessfully, right? You're a tough on, uh, uh, you're, you're a national security Democrat in the truest extent uh, of the word. And again, you know, very tough on, on Russia when you were uh, in the job during the Obama administration. Do you, do you get a sense that the caucus, right? I mean, given the, the, the prominent role that progressives are now playing, that this case will be a little bit more difficult? to make for defense? Or do you think that broadly this this will go through because defense will get horse traded for other priorities? I, I do think there'll be more of an argument about dollars and cents. So, you know, to the extent that moderates are in there interested in defending our defense equities in, in the in Congress, um, they should be highlighting not not the dollars, but really what the dollars are going towards because, you know, the progressives will point out, they'll, they'll point to the magnitude and they'll make the contrast, um, which is understandable. Uh, but, you know, even though we're pulling back from, obviously we've withdrawn from Afghanistan and we've minimized our other um, international engagements in terms of manpower and um, other resources, uh, it's, it's obviously going to take a lot of, uh, you know, budgetary effort to counter China and Russia. And that's really, existential. Uh, and it's, it's obviously cheaper than uh, stumbling into some sort of military confrontation with those with either one of those or, or God forbid, both of those countries. So I think it's, it's going to take some argumentation and, and discussion that moves away from just dollars and cents. Evelyn, I'll be back to you in just a minute, but I, we, we have to go and talk about the uh, Chinese uh, hypersonic missile test. Obviously, there were two tests uh, over the summer that caught the attention of people in Washington. Uh, we heard a sense of urgency uh, coming from Frank Kendall, the secretary of the Air Force, uh, that you know we're sort of out of time and we really, really have to move. The North Koreans tested a sub-launched, a new submarine-launched missile. This time, it did not look like it was a fake because the last time uh, it may have come out of a platform, undersea platform. Uh, Todd, I know CSIS has been tracking this carefully. Give us kind of a quick take on what the capability was that was demonstrated, why it's so scary, because the United States simply didn't think that the Chinese were as advanced on this as they were. I don't know why they should be surprised because the Chinese have been working a lot of these problems, but walk us through what both of those mean broadly. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think we need to kind of pause and reflect a bit that sometimes there's been a bit of overreaction. Uh, and I think there's some confusion in the information that's getting out there. The Financial Times report uh, that came out, um, I, I got to be you know, frank with you that, you know, what was reported, I don't think adds up entirely. Right. The whole point of having hypersonic missiles is to be able to reach targets quickly without much warning. Right. And so that they are difficult to intercept. 
and we absolutely know that China has been developing those weapons and testing them. That is not a surprise. What the Financial Times report added to that was this idea that they launched something that went into orbit uh, and then uh, came, you know, deorbited uh, from space uh, and came down as a hypersonic weapon. That doesn't add up because when you launch it into orbit, uh, that actually makes it easier for us to track uh, because we have all kinds of space situational awareness sensors, not just the U.S. government, private companies, other governments as well, all around the world, including in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, looking up in space, uh, tracking objects uh, as they go into orbit. And it takes about 90 minutes to orbit the Earth. So why would you want to add an extra 90 minutes to your flight time and make yourself uh, much easier to detect and track uh, if your whole point is to launch a hypersonic weapon that's supposed to be fast and able to hit a target without warning. Um, so I think there may be some confusion in what came out of that report. China, of course, came out and said, no, 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 this was a reusable space vehicle, something like the X-37 uh, that the Space Force has been operating for years. Uh, that may be, and you know, that may have actually been a different test in July. Uh, and of course, it does, you know, uh, any object re-entering, you know, the Earth's atmosphere from space uh, is traveling at hypersonic speeds. Um, so, you know, that's one explanation. Uh, right. Another explanation is that folks might not have communicated it properly, right? And what does it mean to be in space or be in orbit? Um, it, you know, a lot of people define space as just being higher than 100 kilometers. Okay, absolutely. You know, pretty much any hypersonic weapon we're testing could, you know, reach 100 kilometers in altitude. Um, that doesn't mean it's in orbit. Well, what does it mean to be in orbit? Well, you know, it could achieve orbital velocity, uh, but not actually go into orbit, still be on a suborbital trajectory, which may have happened. Um, but to actually go into orbit, you got to be at a higher altitude and at an orbital velocity and make it one lap around the Earth. Uh, so I think we, we honestly, you know, the information that leaked out, I don't think we know enough to know what they really tested. And I, I wouldn't overreact to it because we already knew they were developing and testing hypersonic missiles. And what, if anything, what it ought to, you know, promote uh, in us is a sense of urgency at developing missile sensing and tracking capabilities so that we can be better prepared for these threats. Um, uh, ab absolutely. So, you know, when you were talking about suborbital and what does it mean to go into space, I was reminded by the uh, duel uh, between uh, Jeff Bezos and uh, Sir Richard Branson about who actually was making it into space. And then Elon Musk saying, I just want to tell you, being in space means going into orbit. So, um, you know, you could you could sense that Musk might have got, gotten the last word on that. Um uh, and I have to say that I, I'm on the orbital side. I don't think you're really in space until you've done a lap in orbit. So I think John Glenn was the first American in space. But there we go. Well, <laughs> well I, I, I somewhat disagree. And I will say that, um, you know, Al Shepard um, did actually make it to about 110 miles uh, up. Right. I mean, he didn't just grace it's, it's 60 miles, although I understand a lot of this is X-15 and, you know, what the, what the anyway, without getting into that discussion, because time <laughs> is very, very short. Uh, Dove. Uh, let me get your sense on this because uh, Evelyn has got about five minutes and Todd has about five minutes. And I want to go to Evelyn and get her take on Joe Burrell's meeting with Kath Hicks uh, and um, uh, Tony Blinken in Washington and what that means for the future, because the United States has always looked at the at the EU getting stronger as somehow 
bad for NATO. And I'm one of those people who thinks that that's just an absurd argument. But talk to us a little bit about the Chinese hypersonic missile test, because you wrote about it uh, in The Hill today. China's hypersonic missile test, first shot in a space-based arms race, question mark. Give us your take. Well, I I don't disagree with Todd. The only thing is, uh, his last point, I think, is the most critical one, which is we need to be able to know what's up there and to be able to track it properly, which is really what Kendall was talking about. Um, what, what I found interesting is that if the Chinese wanted to def- deter us, uh, say by saying, hey, look, we've got this thing. And so don't try to stop us on Taiwan because we now are in a position to really make your life miserable. Um, why didn't they come out openly and say it instead of denying it? And, and to me, that's because there's a fundamental problem with dealing with China, and it goes to those 230-odd holes in the ground that they're building, uh, which we all believe is for ballistic missiles, which is they believe in strategic ambiguity. They don't want to be the ones to be accused of uh, a space race or anything like that. They want us to be the ones to be violating the Outer Space Treaty. Um, Everything has to be on us. And in the meantime, of course, they're doing kind of what the Israelis do vis-a-vis Iran, which is to say, yes, we know, wink, wink, we have strategic, uh, we have uh, nuclear tip missiles, right. uh, but we're not going to admit it. Um, and the key, as I say, is uh, a couple things. In addition to what Todd said about uh, improving our tracking, we need to get the international community to pressure Beijing on this. Get them, first of all, back, uh, get them to the nuclear arms negotiating table and tell them, hey, this nonsense about strategic ambiguity just doesn't work if you're going to have at least half of what the United States and and Russia have in in the next uh, decade or so in terms of uh, strategic nuclear missiles. And secondly, pressure them to get out of the space business entirely because we've wisened up to what they're up to. Um, I would uh, point out as as much as I think, uh, Todd, you make a very compelling point. Ultimately, this was a test. And uh, we are very concerned that the Chinese may actually be park, may decide to park some of these weapons uh, in space, including maybe even nuclear tip missiles, as Frank discussed, uh, as Secretary Kendall discussed uh, at AFA. And so you don't know whether or not in the broader context, this test was just to see, hey, can I, you know, how easily can I do this and reposition and drop something uh, from orbit to hit us in the head, which I but, don't but necessarily let's, think let's, is. Let's new, also new keep in mind there, there's a reason that, you know, beyond the Outer Space Treaty, which prohibits the stationing that is putting in orbit uh, of nuclear weapons, there's a reason that we didn't do that and the Soviets didn't do that. Uh, that's because you have to put so many weapons up there uh, in you know, a variety of different orbital planes and spaced out uh, so that they can be deorbited and hit a target at any you know, particular place that you want on Earth. You have to put so many of them up there uh, and you still have a pretty slow reaction time to deorbit them and bring them down that it turns out it's just more effective uh, to keep them as ballistic missiles. Right. And so that's what we know China has and is building out is an intercontinental ballistic missile force that will do the same thing and it'll do it faster, more effectively and more cost efficiently. So, you know, if they're going to do that in space and violate the Outer Space Treaty, that's interesting. But it doesn't. First of all, I don't think it's plausible that they actually want to do that. Um, But, you know, the threat is the same. Right, that they have nuclear-armed right. ballistic missiles and or wherever they're stationed, they can hit the United States. 
We know that. And, you know, that's why we have our own second strike capability. Yeah, but I would come back on that on on, on two grounds. The first is, I don't know that China worries about cost efficiency, number one. Number two is everybody knows, uh, and this is what Frank Kendall said, we can track the ballistic missiles and we have ballistic missile defenses, which really are meant against China and Russia and not just against Iran. At least that's always been the plan. What is the problem is that if we cannot identify what these things are in space, then we have a problem because we can't track them. They're maneuverable. They fly low. So all I'm saying is this is not something to be dismissed. And we really need to get the international community to pressure the Chinese because that's the only way the Chinese ever respond. I have to stop that right there because Evelyn is about to punch out and I need to ask her uh, about uh, Todd and uh, Dove. We can come right back to you, but she's kind enough to give us two more uh, minutes. Uh, Evelyn, talk to us a little bit about Joe Burrell's uh, meeting uh, in Washington with Kath Hicks uh, and with Tony Blinken and what you think that means and whether the United States has got to do a better job to engage um, with uh, the EU and not look at the EU as a threat. Todd, thanks very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Go ahead. Um, well, thanks for the question, Vago. I, I actually think, you know, this meeting, it sounds like a sleepy kind of boring meeting. This uh, guy that no one's ever heard of, who is indeed, though, the high representative for the EU for foreign and security policy. Um, long name. Again, no one's heard of him. He comes and he meets with the number two at the Defense Department. That's actually unprecedented. Um, so I, it's, it's interesting that they're having the meeting to begin with. And then if you dive deeper into the agenda that the EU rep had with Kath Hicks and the Deputy Secretary of Defense, as well as with Tony Blinken, our Secretary of State, um, it was very rich um, and it was right on the most urgent issues of the day. Um, and it's coming, let's not forget, on the heels of a lot of tension in the US-European relationship um, and, and in, in tensions that directly affected the EU because the French were so critically involved. So what I'm referring to, of course, is the quick withdrawal out of Afghanistan, which was not coordinated as it, it, it could have been or, or to <laughs> optimally with our European allies and other allies, and the um, decision to go ahead with a submarine deal um, an agreement with Australia and the UK, which kind of unfortunately didn't um, sufficiently diplomatically paper over the fact that the French were losing a big defense contract and somehow include them. Um, nevertheless, this, this meeting now, this trip that um, Joseph Burrell, again, not a, not a household name, made to the United States was aimed at, at saying, okay, look, we may have had these little spats because we're not executing optimally, but we need to focus on you know, really critical issues. Russia continues to be at the, at the forefront of the European leadership's minds because of their ratcheting up, you mentioned it earlier, Vago, of their threats across the board. But of course, very um, critical is the cyber threat, including ransom attacks, ransomware attacks, et cetera. Um, and, and they don't wanna see us pivot completely to China in Europe. You know, they, right. They're going to pivot now with us and that was also part of the agenda because they have their own new now Indo-Pacific strategy the EU does. Um, and so I think this was part of a, an effort, um, certainly by the Europeans, to tell the United States, look, we've got more important things to do than focus on stupid little um, disagreements about execution. And on the US side, I, 
as you said before, yes, the attitude towards the European Union and European Union's role in security and defense affairs has shifted over time. And from the perspective of the Biden administration, as long as nothing the Europeans do in terms of spending and um, allocation of assets weakens NATO. Um, so if the EU can find a way to complement what we're doing with NATO, then right on, we need more of it. So that's kind of my, my quick and not even so quick take. <laughs> Uh, um, no, but I think it's uh, absolutely integral because we've we've had this sort of neuralgia about the relationship, which I think is is just totally absurd. All of those nations that are in, or almost all of the nations that are EU nations are uh, also uh, NATO members, right? Uh, so ultimately, what's the problem here? There shouldn't be any problem at all. And if they want to increase their defense spending, that's something that's very, very positive for us. One, one last uh, question. So what do you think that complementary message has to be? Because I think the EU is buoyed by this and has been looking to strike that right message. Is Burrell striking the right message? And what advice do you have on the European side to make sure that they tailor this so that nobody is able to raise that old and I think quite duddish specter that somehow the EU is trying to supplant NATO, which is absolutely not trying to do. Indeed, NATO na European nations are trying to address the fundamental criticism the United States has, which is you don't spend enough and you keep asking us for capability to do your missions. What, what, what do you think they have to say to get that message right? Yeah, and I would add, interestingly, the, the German defense minister also came out with a strong statement again saying we need EU security and defense policy and, uh, you know, um, equities or operational capability, but again, not at the expense of NATO. So um, I think what would be really helpful is if the leadership of EU and NATO had another meeting on the heels of this meeting in the United States by the EU um, chief, and then, and then, you know, maybe laid out some sort of um, agreement with regard to how they would divide the labor, if you will. It's really about money. Um, you know, how are they going to spend the resources? Who's going to have the lead on certain issues? And, and you know, one example, cybersecurity, I mean, that is clearly not just a defense issue. So that's an area where they could really come out strong. And, and again, finally, I would say on the transatlantic front, and this is beyond transatlantic really, but it starts with transatlantic. Um, and I would always add Japan, South Korea, et cetera, our allies in other parts of the world who have strong tech and other capabilities. Um, but what we need to do is make sure that we move out on all elements of regulation and, and, and defense spending in unison, sort of the way that we've done at a more micro level on, on US and European sanctions policy. So with that, I will turn it over to you. Thank you again, Vago, for the opportunity. Uh, always a pleasure having you on, Evelyn. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Um, okay. Dove, uh, Dove, let me uh, bring you in on this because I know you want to comment on it. And our uh, very own producer, Chris Cervello, has, has joined us and we can uh, transition to the Navy uh, conversation in a minute after I ask you about Iran. Go ahead on Europe. Well, uh, I just wanted to point out how right Evelyn was. I remember speaking to one of our more talented deputy secretaries quite a few years ago and asking, why don't you talk to the EU? And the answer was, we just don't. We don't know much about it. And uh, clearly things have changed and uh, it is important to maintain the conversation. But what we should be asking the Europeans uh, is not really necessarily to spend more. They spend a lot of money. It's how they spend it. And given that we can't fight 
two wars simultaneously. We couldn't fight uh, Iraq and Afghanistan simultaneously. What happens if Putin tries to exploit anything we're doing in, in, the, in the Western Pacific by doing something against the NATO ally? Uh, we have to have the NATO people not just spending money, but spending money on the right things to uh, deter Putin. And so the conversation needs to go on. Uh, obviously, the French have always had a somewhat different view of this, beginning with de Gaulle. But when push comes to shove, they're not going to break away either. Uh, but it is important to focus on what exactly we want the Europeans to spend their money on and not merely what they want, the, the money we want them to spend. Let me take you uh, to uh, Iran uh, and and what we're uh, seeing, right? I mean, interesting uh, demonstration of Iraqi democracy. Uh, obviously, um, the more of what we expected from the Taliban, maybe not as bad as we expected it, right? Women asked, uh, women, municipal workers are not losing their jobs. They're not losing their pay. They're being told stay at home as we try to, I guess, figure out what work <laughs> arrangements for women in municipal jobs has to has to be female doctors are staying on the job and, and medical you know so it's kind of a bizarre thing but i don't necessarily want to go down that rat hole talk to us about iran and what's uh, what's next and anything else on your mind regionally if you want to just to give us a roundup well the, the real message from uh iran uh, iraq is that uh Sadr uh, once again, uh, has come out on top. I mean, this is a guy we wanted a, we had a, a price on his head. Uh, but Muqtad al-Sadr's party is the largest in Iraq. They're clearly going to be the kingmakers. And, and Sadr, he doesn't want anybody in Iraq. He doesn't want us. He doesn't want the Iranians. That may not be a bad thing. If, if uh, getting rid of the Iranians is what he wants, and the price of that is to lower our profile even more, and I doubt he's going to want us to leave entirely, uh, that's a pretty good outcome. So I'd say these elections, uh, at least, uh, you know, at first blush, uh, are, are, you know, pretty favorable to what I think our concerns are. Of course, there's going to be a lot of horse trading between now and when a government's put together, and uh, traditionally it takes months. As for Afghanistan, Yes, it's true the Taliban is, seems to be easing up on women in certain narrow sectors, but they're still really persecuting the Hazaras. They, uh, uh, it, when it comes to uh, what ISIS in Afghanistan is doing to, to Shia mosques, that one, it seems to me the Taliban hasn't gotten all that uptight about. But what that does do is really upset the Iranians. And so we have to see how the Iranian-Afghan relationship is going to play out. One last thing. Uh, Mr. Bennett, the prime minister of Israel, uh, is in Russia. Uh, he had a much longer meeting with Mr. Putin than people anticipated. Apparently, he was friendly and warm. Uh, because of the Shabbat, because he's an Orthodox Jew, he's staying in Moscow over Shabbat, which also means he might meet with Putin again. Uh, that is something we need to watch. The Israelis uh, are hedging on us like everybody else. They say all the right things in Washington, but they're also saying all the right things in Moscow. And that's interesting. Um, well, I mean, it goes back to strategic conversations I've had with Israeli leaders over the decades who would make it very plain to me. And this was uh, during the Bush administration, uh, early in the Bush administration. Look, ultimately, we've got to do what's best for us. 
And they were making a very, very compelling and eloquent case about why the future of Israeli relations were actually China um, and, you know, and not in the United States. And, and it, it was great to have the relationship. Thank you very much. Relationships change. And this is a very attractive relationship. And unfortunately, then we had uh, all the accusations of obviously uh, technology being sold to the Chinese, uh, alas. Um, let me let me ask you before we go to the naval conversation very briefly. I have to ask you uh, about the president's statements uh, about Taiwan. Uh, we've talked about this on the program before. Joe Biden is remarkably candid on these things and has said now repeatedly, as have senior members, uh, military members, and administration uh, leaders, how prominently in U.S. war planning, a defense of Taiwan scenario uh, ranks. Um, I understand that by policy, the United States has been deliberately ambiguous. um, But at the same time, if China thinks it may be able to get away with taking Taiwan and everything it's doing is to threaten and take Taiwan, it may be actually a good dissuasive thing to make clear that the United States will go to bat for Taiwan, right? Removing maybe some of that ambiguity. Once the president made this statement to Anderson Cooper, the White House sort of said there's no change in policy. The president has done this at least once, if not twice before. From your standpoint, is the administration muddling its message because George W. Bush got into the same situation once uh, with the Taiwanese? No, I don't think it is. Uh, It's like uh, the lawyer who asks the witness something that he knows the judge or she knows the judge will disqualify, but that will resonate with the jury anyway. Uh, This is what's going on here, I think. Uh, The White White House spokesman can say this is what the president meant to say, but the president's saying it. And uh, 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 clearly the Chinese are going to have to take notice. There's a wonderful article in Foreign Policy by Bilahari Kauzikan, who's one of the smartest Singaporeans I know, who says that she may be making a mistake here. Uh, He's moved too quickly. He's moved too aggressively. And now he's stuck. Well, I think President Biden is is kind of helping him to unstick himself. And so uh, whatever is walked back, the message is there. It's going to resonate. And Beijing ought to take notice. Absolutely uh, true. And I am one of the people who believes that maybe removing this ambiguity may be actually what's necessary to do to deter um, China. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left in the program. Uh, I should uh, note, uh, Dove, that you have been a longtime advisor to the senior Navy leadership. Uh, and so don't necessarily want to put you on the spot, but I want to bring uh, Cervello uh, in uh, to talk a little bit about the Cavus Ships podcast. Sam Legrone, the editor of uh, USNI uh, News, that stands for uh, United States Naval Institute, um, certainly one of the finest organizations covering the United States Navy. And Sam is a terrific reporter, uh, looked at the Bonham Richard uh, fire investigation uh, documents. number of senior leaders uh, have been investigated as well, including the former commander of U.S. Naval Surface Forces, uh, Rich Brown, uh, a, d- a distinguished surface warrior. But the Navy appears to be looking at this as another one of its systemic breakdowns. Uh, Chris, talk to us a little bit about the investigation, um, what it's found, and whether or not this, like so many other things, is actually going to become something that's going to affect people at lower ranks uh, more than it does at upper ranks. The investigation uh, it was very thorough into the incident. I mean, it, it's a 15-month-long investigation. It looked at what happened on the day of the fire and all of the things that broke down to um, force the ship essentially to be scrapped uh, several months later. 
um, in addition to um, the investigation of the fire itself, there is a um, Navy-wide investigation that looks at damage control and firefighting and where um, there are um, areas that need to be readdressed and what, what lessons need to be relearned from major incidents like the Miami fire that occurred you know, earlier in the decade. And so, um, you know, the Navy really went about this two ways. It went about it on, you know, hey, what, what happened and what didn't happen on Bonham Richard, and then sort of what systemic issues do we need to get our arms around across the fleet? So I, I you know, I give them a lot of credit for um, the degree in which that they went after um, this particular incident. Um, and, you know, in the Bonham Richard incident uh, report, the, the specific report that looked at what happened on the ship, there are 36 uh, individuals that essentially are blamed by the investigating officer, uh, Vice Admiral Scott Kahn. And, and um, you, you know, they range from uh, members of the crew, the commanding officer, the executive officer, the chief engineer, different watch standards, all the way up to, as you said, three-star Rich Brown, who was Naval Service Forces at the time, the um, Southwest Maintenance Regional Commander, the, um, the Naval Installation Regional Commander, so, I mean, there is a lot of uh, blame that is spread uh, across these 36 individuals from tactical mistakes to systemic mistakes that essentially, you know, add up to a ship not being ready to um, fight a major fire uh, and not, um, not having the resources available and not being able to integrate those resources that should have, um, you know, been able to contain the fire and should have prevented us from losing the ship. Um, I, I just want to, uh, uh, I'm going to bring Dove uh, in, in in a moment, but I just uh, want to get your sense on how this investigation plays into the narrative of a Navy uh, adrift, right? We, we saw the three big conferences in a row, Navy League, AFA, AUSA, AFA and AUSA, as we've discussed and discussed on the show, had a, had a spark and a sense that the services really are, are moving out, whereas in at Navy League was a sense that the Navy is is not getting its act uh, together uh, and is suffering. Uh, and uh, Steve uh, Cohen uh, did a piece uh, that ran uh, in the Hill uh, talking about um, the, the criticism of the Navy not being able to get together, right? The title is, is the Navy uh, totally uh, at uh, sea? And of course, Steve is an attorney with Pollock and Cohen, uh, and he's a former board director at USNI. How does this play into that narrative, Chris? Because I have to say that the criticism of the Navy leadership is sharp, even when you talk to some senior Navy leaders, which which is sort of an extraordinary situation, in a sense. Well, I mean, my, my view and the the view of a, a lot of folks, I think, in the in the Navalist community is is that this is the latest example of a of an organization that has real problems. Um, you know, again, my personal opinion is, is that it's an organization that the um, size and resourcing is not um, adequately paired with the um, operations that, that are being asked uh, of it to do. And that, you know, essentially you get the Navy that you, you resource, you know, you get the Navy that you pay for. And in this case, we're getting that Navy. And so until you either dial the operational commitments down or dial up the resources, uh, and both are problematic. So I, I don't pretend to have the answers, but after sort of a lifetime of kind of tracking and, and thinking about this, I would say that until you get those two sides of the equation in balance, 
I don't think it gets any better. I, I, I don't think this is as simple as, you know, picking a new CNO or introducing a new ship class or, you, you know, hey, a couple million dollars here and a couple million dollars there. I, I think that there's some real rot that needs to be cut out of the, um, you know, th this organization to get it on the, on the right track. Um, now, you either do that now um, or you're going to have to do it, you know, as, as conflict looms even larger and maybe even closer, given all the things that you guys have talked about on this show over the last couple of months about China. So it would seem to me that now's the time to really try to get your arms around this. Um, I would uh, point out, though, right, I mean, I understand the resource and, uh, argument and, and obviously, um, you know, don't let any good crisis go to pass, right? But I think that the challenges the Navy faces go well be, it's not a resource problem. It's a cultural issue. It's a risk aversion issue. It's, it's, it's encouraging people to take uh, risk in some cases, then punishing them for taking that risk uh, somehow, right? And, and it almost always is the, the ship commander who ends up getting shot, um, you know, although I think in Fat Leonard's case, we've seen that that got elevated to a higher level. Yeah, Bago, but in my opinion, those cultural issues are very much um, made worse. They're very much expanded by the resource requirements mismatch. But again, it's about that the Navy is at its best when it's, uh, you, you know, living by the unless otherwise uh, directed uh, get out there and do it, uh, you know, uh, uh, beg for, don't ask for permission, beg for forgiveness and be smart about the risks you're taking and understanding when people take risk, as opposed to the way that we seem to be doing it in the culture the Navy has sort of been living by for the last several decades. I mean, I, I think this stems back to tailhook uh, in, in some respects um, and, and that that's, uh, that's the, the, a key part of the challenge and, and the problem. Dove, I want, we're running very short on time. I want to get your sense on this because you've thought deeply about some of these cultural and written about some of these cultural challenges uh, as well. Yeah, what does the Navy I, have to do? Look, there's no doubt that there's been crisis upon crisis and, and uh, poor CNO, he's never had a chance to come up for air because he's inherited a ton of these. All of these crises, by the way, did not take place on his watch. And, and that has to be remembered. Uh, I would simply say this. There's two fundamental issues here that that uh, are important. The first one is uh, on this whole question of Bonhomme Richard. I mean, you, I was on John Lehman's uh, task force that looked at uh, what happened on the Sheffield during the Falklands War. And that, of course, had a lot to do with fire and fire prevention and Clearly, the Navy just dropped the ball, but the fact that a three-star has been nailed is important. That sends a message throughout the fleet that whatever's happened in the past, and, and it's no longer just the uh, commander of the ship or the petty chief petty officer who gets nailed, but three stars watch out. You better be uh, on your guard as well. So that's, that's an important change, I think. The second is the whole question of HR, and, and the Steve Cohen article points that out, that they're cutting uh, you know, things that go to morale and welfare, which are a few hundred million dollars, and not uh, cutting the big stuff. Uh, and it seems to me that HR has always been honored more in, in the breach, you know, that everybody goes up to the hill and says, people are the most important asset we have. But then we don't do as much for people as we can, number one. Number two is it's not just only about money. We have to be much more uh, sensitive to what people need. And it isn't big bucks. And Steve Cohen pointed that out. Uh, 
hopefully the Navy will pick up on that like it picked up just now on the uh, Bonhomme Richard responsibility. Uh, but I think that's where they need to go. I think change is only going to happen if the Navy decides to make actual cultural change because its overwhelming predilection is just shoot lots of people, but don't really change anything. And all that does is drive greater risk aversion, greater panic, and people who just want to make it through their command tour without making a single ripple. And that's a big part of this problem. And at, at some point, all of that becomes a great wall that prevents you from moving forward. And I think is, is what may actually be constipating the whole organization. But, you know, it, it, it's certainly no one cause. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Terrific conversation today. As always, hope you guys have a great weekend and a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot.